Welcome to the Surviving Society housing series. The right to a safe home should be a multi-class issue that we can build solidarities from. From the cladding scandal, Grenfell and a lack of affordable housing, this series will feature experts, academics and activists to educate us on how the state and corporate organisations have continued to fought collective unities on these matters. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo and Dan Rennick. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Housing Series. Um, we are really excited today to be joined by one of the producers of the series and the person who inspired us and encouraged us to create this series that is dedicated to housing and housing in Britain. It's Dan Rennick. Hello, thank you for having me again, guys. It's always so good to have Dan on the show. If you're a long-term listener of the show, you would have heard Dan on here before. Well, we have a phrase, don't we? Um, me, Tiso and George, we say... Release, release the Dan. Dan. Release the Dan. Release the Dan. Release the Dan. It's like, I feel like Dan is kind of like an exaggerated <laughs> version of Danny Dorlin. The facts, yeah, it, it, but then with the scathing... But if, 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 if Danny Dorlin grew up in the ends... What's that? If he grew up in the ends. Yeah, Danny yeah, yeah. Dorlin, if he grew up in the ends. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Gordon scares me, man. Yeah. Why? No, he's a softie. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thinking about this series and releasing this series sort of over the past few weeks, it's important for us to just remind listeners that we did decide we wanted to do this a while ago now, just to say that the premise of the series is based around thinking about scholars and radical intellectuals like Sivan Anden, thinking about how we create movements and issues and coalesce around those things. And Dan reminds us that housing is such a important but kind of straightforward issue and movement that we can like galvanise around because it's a multi-class issue. Yeah, so Dan, we wanted to have a broad conversation about Britain and the history of social housing. Where would we start? in thinking about the contemporary? I mean, the way that we've started, so me and Robbie Shilliam have got a co-writing a book on this. And I mean, it's lockdown's been in the way. I've pushed it to the last right. degree, like Stop. most of us do. Stop right? right there, Dan. Dan is writing a book with Robbie Shilliam called Squalor, mm -hmm. which is based on... It's housing, right? Housing. So it's like, that it's, is amazing. So, so just, the, let, just give you your flowers. Book eight, coming out. It's eight years since the beverage report, right? So... This year will be 80 years since the Beverage Report was released. And, and what is the Beverage Report? The Beverage Report is seen as the kind of foundation of the welfare state in Britain, right? Thousands, hundreds of thousands of copies were sold during the war. It became the document that kind of faced post-war kind of reconstruction and was the bedrock of the welfare state as we know it and of the kind of political commitment that we saw from 45 to 79, right? But if we're to talk about housing, then... There wasn't much that Beveridge did in regards to housing, right? He talked about squalor in very kind of simplistic terms. And actually, as he proposed kind of a universal benefit, I actually just capped, uh, it gave you a flat rate of rent support to people who lived in, who needed government support because he didn't want to allow people to live in nice areas, right? He didn't want to encourage people or develop an inequality that allowed people to live where they chose, right? Or before the benefits came in, went and got a place of their choosing and then had the government pay half. So in order to stop that, he kind of set a flat rate. Of, so it's very similar, actually, in terms of his, because he was setting a minimal standard, Beveridge was setting a minimal standard. So he's very similar in welfare logics to the Tories, right? But Beveridge is seen as the kind of welfare liberal, kind of almost socialist, 
And he talked in quite revolutionary discourse and he laid the foundations of what we call the welfare state. But as it pertains to housing, wasn't he didn't do the novel work. The novel work of housing goes back way into the 1800s. And there it was based upon a real fear of the urban poor, right? Who were treated as a race and class apart, right? You had the practice of phrenology, you had eugenics practiced in Britain, and you had this real understanding that there were places and spaces in urban centers, particularly where degenerationist practices were taking place. People were breeding wrong, they were living wrong, they were too communal, they lived too close to animals. They were centers of disease, right? And they needed to be controlled because they were a threat to the body politic, right? So, I mean, you can have a really Foucauldian understanding of this because this is biopolitics, right? This is control over life. And this is really a look at how people are living in the city and how that can lead to potential revolution, potential spread of disease, all of these habits and all of these things that these say is degenerating the Great British Empire, right? I can see you're deep in the writing. But, so, but that's it. You so see, you, you've got this whole theory that the poor are a threat. So the way that you first deal with that threat is you try and bring them in. And property is fundamental to this, right? But they are not earning enough to buy, right? And the private sector is never built for rent. So what they end up having is awful slum accommodation, right? So the vast majority of people in Britain that lasts about 100 years, right? Hundreds of years, really, but you have certain slums that just aren't changed in Britain until the 1960s, 1970s, right? Which we don't see. We see the tower blocks. We don't see the slums that came before it. We don't see the solution that came. If you go Commercial Street you're on Ejector Ripper Tour, that was one of the last slums to be locked down. So you can see where the slums were. So all that Commercial Street, all that was a slum. Commercial Street is in... As in Allgate East Station. Allgate Station mm-hmm. in London. Just sorry, London. International, yeah, yeah. international Sorry, sorry, audience, yeah. in London, sorry. Yes, sorry. Check your all, locations. All around us here, though, right? Mm. I mean, the thing is that we see central London now as like tourism rarefied richness right like you can't touch like all around here holborn was a dirty slum mm-hmm. right st giles was one of the most notorious slums you can imagine right mm-hmm. like many places that we now consider to be bougie to the nth degree were some of the worst places you could possibly walk in the 1800s right some of the worst slums considered to be in the world were mm-hmm. in britain at this moment at that moment in history right so if you go inside mansion house there's a a statue from Pitt the Younger, and it talks about the poor and what the poor represent to the uh, early 19th century, late 18th century imagination. They represent revolution. The poor in France killed their king just now, and we cannot have that happen here. It's actually written down, he said he makes sure this will never happen. It's in the interest to control this urban mess. And if you go to Davenport Street, again, just off Commercial Road, the police didn't go there. That's when notoriously when Jack the Ripper murders took place, or one of them took place. This was London. Up until the 1960s, people where I used to live were still pissing outside. There's no toilets, man. Up until I started going to primary school. What like, is that, T? Well. <laughs> <laughs> we need oh, the right, right, listen, listen, listen. Right, boom. Right, so in the 1980s, right? So when I'm in primary school, I'm still seeing bombed out wreckage from the war and corrugated iron. Now, we associated corrugated iron huts with South Africa and all that. It was all around the East End, everywhere, outside my primary school. So when I used to walk home, corrugated iron used to say, like, G. Davis is innocent. And that was someone from the International Front. And that was standard, that was normal. That was Britain. Hang on, wait, T. This mm. is the 80s. Like, 
These are the good old days. <laughs> this is when Britain was brilliant. No, no, that's yeah. when it was great. This is when everyone borrowed like borrowed stuff from our neighbours, no, and you could you could get some sugar and milk, and you could. Fucked, man. <laughs> this kind of boom that you see, it's modern Britain. I think it's from the nineties onwards, man. Eighties weren't like that, man. It weren't like that at all. But, but, but I mean, this is the thing. I don't. It was never like anything that we see it as, mm. right? Central London never didn't become the kind of rich space that we see it as until late into the 20th century. There mm. were still pockets of deprivation, and there still are. I mm. mean, you don't have to go far out. Elephant Castle, Peckham, mm. Notting Hill, Bush. It's not hard to go very far. Tottenham, right? But Tottenham was built to be a working class suburb, right? So you had the begin the development of suburbs of london certain mm. ones were built to house the skilled working class but you always left the poorest in the inner cities right i mean the whole frame of analysis that we have around housing i mean the best way that we've ever addressed housing was post-1945 was Nairon bevan saw the way to a classless society was to develop houses council houses that people of the middle class would aspire to live in right and through property you could overcome class divisions right that is probably the most powerful part of the welfare state formation. And it didn't come from an Iron, it didn't come from Beveridge, it came from an Iron Bevin. And it only lasted six years because when the Tories came into power, they reduced the space standards. So we have this idea of a post-war consensus, right? What I'm coming to learn from what I've researched, right, is that there's a continuum within the Tory party, which is that they never really bought into a post-war consensus. They always believed that private property was the best way, right? Mm -hmm. Now, council housing as a national policy emerged in post-First World War, right? The first time we ever had a national policy of council housing was the Homes for Heroes campaign, right? Lloyd George announces it. You have all of these homes that are being built, but again, it's for a certain skilled section of the work. Sorry, Dan, just for listeners to keep up, because this is really important context. So, David Lloyd George, what, what year are we talking? 1919, yeah. so right after the First 1919, World War. 1919, right after the First World War. So he makes the promise of Homes for Heroes, right? And Homes for Heroes is the first national campaign for what's national legislation but it's only not it's only last nine years the belief is that after that amount of time the state can pull back and the private sector can take its place right what you see between the first world war and the second world war is a kind of balance between labor and conservatism and approaches to that housing problem with some legislating that the state that local authorities had to build council housing the largest amount of Houses built in that time were the private market, and the Tories never forgot that. The Tories always believed that the private market were the more efficient builders, but they never really took consideration of the fact that private building doesn't build for the poorest earners in British society, and it never has. Right? We don't, we can't afford to buy them, and we can't afford to rent them when they're with all of these new builds, just like modern London, right? So you see all of these things play out, and the response in the post-war years is to kind of level society and to build these homes that everybody would aspire to live in, but it's too slow, right? So Bevan's beaten and a reduction of standards happens very quickly. By 51, you see a reduction in standards. And through that reduction in standards, you have a denigration of council housing, even in the post-war consensus, even in its greatest moment, right? You see this kind of subdivision within British, the British class system play out in the allocation of houses where people lived, right? But you ended up with Rackmanism, right? <laughs> The denigration of the, of the council flat, when did this happen? Because when I speak to the older people who are what, 80, 90 now, and they talk about how the sense of pride they had in the estate, the sense of this was the gold standard. To be off, to get a council flat, boom, you, you're winning. But now people see council flats slightly differently. So, I mean, it, 
what's interesting is that there's mad conceptions about what housing is, right? So in the in the Victorian period, they had this idea of miasma, right? That smell was mm. disease, right? That a lack of that if you didn't have enough sunlight, you were more likely to die, right? So mm. you had this whole kind of conception of the deterioration of and bear in mind this is this is about capitalist reproduction. It's the reproduction of the workers and it's about imperial conflict, right? It's not that Britain cares about the poor because the poor lives matter. It's because the poor lives matter to the reproduction of their wealth, right? And so these things need to be addressed. So what you have is when the, when the first National Council housing is built, you have it built to what's called the Tudor Water Standard, which was 850 square feet, and it had provisions regarding internal plumbing and, uh, and, and lighting. The private market never got those regulations, right? So in the 20s, 30s, you had council houses being built that were of a much higher standard than what was being built by the private sector. And the private sector at this time was pretty much uncontrolled. It could build wherever it wanted, right? So most of the outer areas of London were built in the 30s, right? When nobody really controlled them. Nobody could control the builders. The builders went and just developed along the railway lines, right? This is what they called urban sprawl or ribbon developments. And they went all the way out. In the post-war years, you have the you have the introduction of the planning system, right? The planning systems cap London, right? In London, London's population only grows by six hundred thousand, and London's population, if you compare it to other cities in the world, has really been controlled since nineteen forty-five, right? And that's through planning controls, that's through property, that's through, and so that's when you have the new towns that are built, Chantel. So in forty-six, you have the first new towns that are constructed. Um, I have a question which goes back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago, Dan, about um, the consistency that you are seeing in your research, I'm guessing sort of in Hansard and in the archive, is that the Tories never really bought into council housing. So what's really interesting to me now in thinking about sort of the last sort of 20 years, maybe even 30 years of the Tory party and Labour and housing is the way they're able to present themselves as people that were signed up to that, just like they're the way they're able to present themselves as people that were signed up to the NHS. It's a kind of, but the, the thing is that it wasn't that the Tories didn't. The Tories, but the Tories would build more houses. The greatest number of council houses built ever in a single year was under the Tories, right? Under Macmillan, under those people's home standards, right? It was a reduction of standards and you built them fast, but you built it as a kind of, transitory space the council house was supposed to get you stable enough that you aspired to move into the private sector you weren't supposed to live in a council house for life the tories have never wanted to provide a house for life it was never supposed to be quite the grave it was supposed to be a minimum standard so the state's providing you it's like like the welfare state it's like a buffer mm-hmm. like well you can have a home but just for two years and then hopefully by then you'd be on your feet and you can buy your own which is exactly what they've now introduced with these short-term tenancies right which Mm. is in a way the crystallization of what they've always wanted which is that council housing should not i mean within tory logics this is a disincentive we don't we don't want to move we stay stationary if we've got cheap rent we're less likely to move for work we're less like that there's a lot of things that we do if we limit ourselves to where we're subsidized so what they want is a self-sufficiency. They want us to mm. be enterprising. To which is which is in line with the doctor with the ideology, right? Exactly. Right. So the the idea that the, the council housing for them has always been like the encroachment of the big state, right? It was always seen, and the thing, and this is the thing: the two big stages at which Britain decided it was going to build loads of council housing, and there was assent from both parties, was after two wars, right? 
And both times they were scared of the consequences of those wars with the soldiers coming home with military training and radical ideologies. And if in those both moments you see this mass building since 79 to now, we've had nothing within British society that has led the state out of fear, because it was fear that led the state to develop these mechanisms within society to look after us. Without fear, the state don't really seem to care, do they? Right? And this is the this is the reality that we have to contend with is what 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 was unique historically that allowed the state to develop these so-called consensuses that led to massive intervention, right? Because we've had massive intervention in the housing sector. But it's called mm. help to buy, right? It's the first time buyers that the Tories are more concerned about, right? And this affordable housing that we now have is not affordable. And this is this this isn't something that's novel. And one of the questions I think that we, I think there's a laziness in the conceptualization of neoliberalism in Britain that sees the Tories as somehow not consistently beholden to private landowners, developers or contractors, right? They have always been the party of big business and those who have, right? And those people have never accepted a consensus by which they're building a more egalitarian society, right? So there's always been reform to conserve, which is the Tories, right? And what we now live under is a time when we don't like, I think what we have to look at is what we had politically, internationally and domestically, that meant that these concessions, and they were concessions, were made to us. Because at this moment in time, I think what 40% of our generation are going to be in private rental accommodation in, in our elderly years, right? That's, that's a very considerable social problem that we're going to face in our later years. And we don't really face it right now because we laugh it off. You know? Man's 44, bro. It's close. <laughs> I think about it all the time. I guess the question is then, like, what kind of society do we want to have, right? How do we go about building society, this kind of society? And pursuit of individualism and neoliberalism is taking over people's mindsets. They don't think collectively anymore, man. Like, to speak to someone in the street, say, for example, climate change. Climate change will involve all of us sacrificing something to get this done, down to the personal level. No one's sacrificing fuck all. <laughs> you see them out on your four by fours, you recycle a cup, not stop driving your four by four. But I do think your point there is kind of focusing on the individual in itself. Yeah, I, right, so I'm thinking, so I'm, there's also an individual and at the structural level. Yeah. I, no one's willing to do anything, man. Okay, roll back to the mindset stuff. And mm. I guess this goes back to what Dan was saying in terms of thinking about 1950s and the time when we're seeing regulations being relaxed in terms of quality of housing yeah. for people. Thinking about 1950 and then taking us all the way to 1979 and then thinking about Thatcher... What happens there? Why are they then... Is, is enough time passed since the war that they're able to they start rolling things back? And then what is it that Thatcher does that enables what Tiso is calling the, la the breakdown in collectivity? I know there's a lot of things, but it's good to talk about them. I, think. I know we talk about this a lot on the show, but I think it's always good to remind ourselves. In post-war environment, there's a couple of major things yeah. that happen, right? I mean, you have that kind of reduction of standards, but what you still have is that it's rackmanism is what I yeah. talked about earlier. Yeah, you what have, is rackmanism? It's the, it's the private rental sector, right? Okay. It's the slum landlord, right? So Peter Rackman or Peric Rackman was a Polish immigrant who built a massive property empire in northwest London. Yeah, he was mad. Right? Michael X. Michael X. Do you yeah. know Michael X? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael X. Do you watch that documentary? Yeah, that, he was his uh, thug when he was like, yeah. he's so collecting he, money. He, he worked for Rackman. So the, you, you talked about the Sky Cinema one. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, they, you know, when he was Malcolm X story, the Malcolm yeah. X to Michael X story, yeah, yeah, like yeah. when he was the street hustler, cowboy. He, he, he was working for Pe- he was working for Peter Rackman. But he was see, an enforcer for Peter Rackman. You see that Rackman? He was in a, a concentration camp. Yeah. So Rackman Rackman develops a massive property empire in London, isn't it? Right. And he does so through a number of things, but the Tories introduced the Rent Act in 57. So we had rent controls in Britain before, right? One of the key things that we ask for now in Britain is rent controls. We had them through both wars after, in the First World War and then the Second World War, Britain introduced rent controls and they stayed in Britain for a long period of time, right? So what you ended up was with massive inflation, but rent stayed at the level they were at the wars, right? Which meant that you had real deterioration of the housing stock, right? So you had landlords pushing for decontrol of this stuff, right? Which Rackman was one of these people. As the Tories started to decontrol rental accommodation, and bear in mind that Rackman is renting in places where predominantly black people have settled, right? Where racist, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, right? So he's developed this whole tenant base of people who are find it hardest to find accommodation in London. And some of them, some of them are in rent controls, and some of them you're poorest, right? And all of a sudden, develops this really problematic way of getting rid of his tenants, right? Driving them out, which is what Michael X does, right? He works as the enforcer for Rackman, but Rackman develops this fame because you know about the Perfumer Affair, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but remind our listeners of the Perfumer Affair. So Christine Keeler and uh, and John Perfumo, right, end up having an affair in. Uh, and one of the places that they went to, and Christine Keeler was a socialite who slept with a number of other people. He only gets a name for himself because he's involved in a social circle, yeah? British state is scared by who he's running with, right? And so he becomes the name of the slum landlord in Britain. But the private rental sector is where post-war, Windrush generation, first Asian people to settle in Britain, they, they didn't get the welfare state. Right? Council housing was not available to people when they first came to Britain. It was conditional upon a length of stay. So everybody was in the, pri- in the private rental sector. And there was such discrimination within the private rental sector that you ended up with people trying to buy, right? But the thing is that there was inflated rates for black families that tried to buy. And if black people settled in an area, it was generally seen to depreciate values. So there was loads of resistance to these things. So you ended up with really inflated prices and people really struggling to find the finance arrangements and so what you ended up was these people buying slum property in the areas that planning and planners were planning to demolish right so when you got rid of the slums all of these places were compulsory purchase right and in Moss Side in Manchester they got paid a hundred pounds as a bricks and mortar charge and then the only thing that was built in its place so bear in mind these are property owners black property owners in the 1960s Britain 1960s 1970s Britain they paid £100 for their yard, that's four months in a council house. Right? That's four months rent in a council house. You owned your property. Right? Now when we look at census data, data, we say that Bangladeshi communities, African Caribbean communities are the least likely to own property in Britain, I think Arab communities as well. Right? We don't tell a history by which people, when they first came to Britain because of discrimination, were only in the private sector, either in rent or, or buyers, and it was state policy that drove them into, right? Mosside had, I think it was 16% of the black population were in council housing at the beginning of the 1960s. By the end of the 1960s, it's 59%. That is social engineering that develops the bigger states, that develops this culture of dependency. We've grown up 
for me, I've grown up where all of these things are taken as a given, right? We don't even see or understand the architecture that surrounds us, right? We just take it as there and it's always been there, right? If we drill down, there's loads of, there's so much in it, right? That's the fascinating thing for me now is that if you actually see that kind of total, totalizing picture, you understand that actually since 79, we've not had meaningful politics as it pertains to this stuff at all in Britain, right? Because you've had just, and the way that Thatcher did it, to answer that, it's right to buy, right? The biggest privatization that Thatcher ever did was right to buy, right? Like you're talking about the complete, like over 1 million people exercise the right to buy, right? And she said she was like, "Look, everyone needs wants to own something, own your thing. Anyone can do it. Like as well as, well as rhetoric, what was what was in people's interest to buy? Why apart from the rhetoric and having something that you own, quote unquote own, it's yours. I think I think personally, I think it's a, that kind of class notion of Britain, man. Your your the aspiration you can be like the middle classes and own your home." It's all fucking bullshit, man. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. So, it, like, if we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, yeah, yeah. like, what was the promise? So, if, you, if you're in a council house, right? Yeah. Say you're not in a flat, because the flats were the least likely to be bought through right to buy, right? So, the first thing that people did was they bought those nice Tudor water standards homes, those nice Bevan-built homes, those homes that were, like, the Lansbury estate, right? These places that became, like... And then you had the kind of cool places like Trellick Tower, which became in their yeah. own way, right? And now what's happening to Balfron Tower, right? Where these towers are being semi-privatized or absolutely privatized in the case of Balfron, right? But for the most part, it was that people were, they couldn't choose the color of their door. They, was, they were still told by the local authority how to tend their gardens. They didn't, have, they didn't have individuality, right? Being a property owner gave you the right to change the color of your door, to take ownership of your space, right? You didn't have to ask the landlord for it. You didn't have to ask them to repair, right? So in a lot of cases, you ended up with these people paying huge amounts of fees. They lived in a block, for example. Their service charge was ridiculous once they became leaseholders. Once they exercised the right to buy, it wasn't covered by their rent anymore, right? They had to pay massive amount. They weren't beneficiaries necessarily. There was a lot of costs that came depending on where the right to buy was exercised. So but what you ended up with, with within a generation because of what happened with industry in Britain is that you had people exercise the right to buy, lose their jobs and sell off their properties. So what you ended up with was just another form of slum landlordism emerging mm-hmm. Britain where huge amounts of stock were bought up in the 80s and 90s by people who were enterprising who now dominate a private rental sector, right? Then you're ruining my Friday, bro. It's all the receipts, isn't it? Bro, it's, it's good, man. It's amazing. Like the detail. Yeah, the detail's sick, man. It's sick. Yeah. I, it's scary because the thing I did, I mean, I didn't know this before. So I got, asked, like, I got asked to write this book and I'm just doing my shit on Grenfell, really. So I was like, I've never really gone back. I know it in the basic form, but mm. to go back and to read some of this stuff, there's some great books out there. Mm. So it's not like this stuff is new or that i'm the first person to come across mm. this stuff as well like, it's well versed in britain but the thing is that i don't know i don't know what incubates this within our society i don't know where we have these conversations right this whole area is formed by a kind of municipal better britain right you know royal festival hall was constructed as a kind of festival of britain mm. right as a kind of vision of the new britain right and it 
we were selling ourselves as a socialist nation with the kind of riverfront that you see around here is this kind of dream of a better it didn't last did it right it didn't last we had a number of things that happened but really what we've seen is the the winning of the conservative argument which is that the state are an imperfect vessel to provide housing and what you have is this disallowance of the private sector market to, the market to dominate people fear the state being too big and encouraging if from a tory point of view encouraging people not to work that's one of the fears right but i just i just feel like i i just really i don't even want to give that air not because you're saying it in that mm. way t just because i just feel like when people even sort of like your quote-unquote well-meaning liberals <laughs> engage in this kind of stuff <laughs> it's such bad faith argument and it's such mm. it's so there's so many false equivalences surrounding it what i mean by that is that like it's okay for us to create an image of the undeserving poor or that people have to 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 ride on a notion that everyone has to work hard and if you work hard that's why you deserve housing you have to you have to earn housing all this stuff when the rich and powerful or the elite literally are born into like untold wealth and security yeah. and it just the same rules don't apply simply because by accident of birth i know that sounds really simplistic but i just feel I like agree. how the fuck do we get away from people just consistently engaging in what who is deserving and undeserving when society is so unequal like on the basis of birth I, so like it's just completely bad faith so, like, so this is the thing right and I, this is what's come up in the pandemic right exactly so the pandemic showing how inequality is baked into the uk always has been so and then you want to tell me who deserves housing and who doesn't so but the question is though but how do you like i saying that you just said how do you shift away from that that's centuries of ingrained fuckery man given how people are so differential to the monarchy and differential to the idea of inequality in itself i like you said war was a great catalyst but because 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 of brexit UK is not the UK anymore, man. It's fucked. Yeah, I guess, no, and I, to- I agree with what you're saying, T, but I guess some of the people that I am thinking about are that, like your liberals, but also your like apathetic types that talk about this again in a way that presents it as something that is debatable, that changes over time when it's very consistent. And it just shows a real lack of understanding of who Britain is, who we are as a society and the detail, the history and the detail that Dan's just given Dan, I just think. Sorry, see, is 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 the right to ha- is the right to a home a UN? Yeah. So in forty eight, yeah. that became that's that's a, that's a human right. Yeah, yeah, it's right? a human right, right? Um, so we, I mean, the, and the thing is that it's that, that there is a level at which you can kind of see a post war consensus as an attempt to. It's a never again moment, right, across the world mm-hmm. post forty five, right? And the never again moment here, one of the things is you've got to get rid of the slums, right? People have been living in shit for years, right? No, no plumbing, right? No central heating, mm. right? I mean, I don't, like. There's a there's a paint there's a picture that's painted of Britain, right? That isn't true in so many different ways. That is just pejorative and nonsense, right? Mm. One of them is that people have always benefited from the empire, right? Like somebody who's selling that family selling their kid into being a chimney sweeper in the 1800s. Tell me how that person is a beneficiary of the British Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And tell me other person in post-1945 who experiences the worst winter ever on British record in 1947 without a home is beneficiary of that, of that same British Empire. Those people, the welfare state was developed 
in process that like they lived in either prefabs or took over army barracks lived like squatting in britain at first was a radical political act but some levels of political support existed for right because there was all of this empty accommodation left post-war that was taken up at first right so you have like you have real resistances in britain that kind of shift the conversation that i don't know we've got to a point now where i think there's been this like you've got to just look at things like guardianship right things that if we've gone from a generation where people could come up with things like Fristonia, the olive morrises etc right you go and try and get cheap accommodation or squat in brixton right now number one you can't right and now you have people who are paid to look after that property and surveil that property that are kind of semi-official squatters but working in the interests of private developers and the local authorities. Right? Oh my God, I'd never thought about guardianship like that. Right? I kind of thought it was like kind of a good thing, but it's, it's not, is it? They literally are agents of private capital, right? They don't mean to be. They're looking no. for cheap accommodation, but as a condition of their tenancy, they're supposed to maintain the building, surveil it, stop people from congregating in certain areas. You're talking about like... If we're talking about a kind of prevent agenda, these are kind of community stewards of a of the neoliberal state, right? And we see this kind of contortion and with this logic of like looking after self, this neoliberalization, right? If you try and have a conversation with somebody, like one of my big critiques of going on modern dating apps is that if you're going to go on a date, somebody's going to surmise whether you're able to do a, able to go on a mortgage with them. It's a five year plan, isn't it? If I don't meet your five year plan, if I'm not going to be somebody who you can share a share a mortgage with share a bank account with then really you're not going to settle down with me right right because people are see people people are making economic calculations all the time now right we can't do it as individuals now our generation are literally looking for somebody to cohabit with right and you're speeding up processes because that's the only way that you're going to really enter into a housing market in britain is if you cohabit with somebody find that person and so you're that's our generation. I met. I spoke to my cousin. I met with Dan, my cousin. Daniel, full G. I'm going to give you a full five mics. I'm giving you. No, I'm giving you five mics. Five mics. Five mics. We don't have five mics. Five mics. You're talking to your cousin. I met my cousin the other day and try, trying to speak about it, and it was so like the fact that I was like, I don't like it. Like just trying to have a conversation about it and pick it apart. Like wasn't it? Who, it's so integral it's like it's natural to us right yeah and there's this kind of stubborn resistance to going but like what other way is there right well there used to be a way like there's other european cities like i lived in berlin i met so many people in berlin who had a part-time job and lived well in the city right mm-hmm. if you if you grew up in the shabby shabby chic london of the 90s and 80s right they lived they had part-time work and lived the life of riley like london used to be that type of place like and now other cities are going through the same thing, the financialization, right? One of the things that, I, that we like, because there's so much shit that's contributed to this moment, right? And you're going to have hell editing this, by the way, right? But <laughs> in he, 19, Wait, he's coming, he's coming, he's going to drop something. In, 19, on. in 1961, the Tories introduced this thing called the Land Compensation Act, right? Land Compensation Act is the maddest thing, right? So in the post-war years, as part of what you're going to do to build places like the new towns, your places like Stevenage, Harlow, Basildon, etc., right, is if you go and start trying to buy prop- buy the land to build a new town from every landowner, you buy it from one, it's going to inflate the price, right? Mm. So the only way that you can do that is to buy in bulk. You buy these 
basically enable the state to become a massive purchaser of land, right? But in order to do that, you're not going to pay them speculative value of what the land would be worth if you built the new town. You buy it at the current use value. So if the person who owns the land is doing nothing with it, you pay them at use value, right? Now that, and, and then all of the speculative value that's generated through that development, all of that money goes into the hands of the state, right? We had that as legislation in Britain from 46, 47, depending, because it kind of splits between two acts of legislation, until 1961. And then after 1961, do you know what the Tories did, right? They said that hope value and speculative value is the right of the landowner, right? And so all of the money that's generated through a plan, when you grant planning permission, that money doesn't come to the state anymore. It goes to the, it goes to the developer and the landowner in its entirety. Twice there's been an attempt since to address this, and multiple Tories have talked about it, but as it stands, when you grant planning permission, 100% of that money generated, all of that value generated by a new planning project goes into the hands of our big developers and our landowners in Britain. So just juxtapose that with the Netherlands, 90% goes to the state in the Netherlands, only 10% goes to the developer and the landowner, right? We have a record. Gove is promising now to build 300,000 homes a year. That's our record ever in Britain. The Netherlands, a much smaller nation state, has a record of building 600,000 homes a year and doesn't have our housing crisis. Our housing crisis in many ways is generated by a servile political class to landowners in Britain, right? To the interests of landowners in Britain. And what they have been able to do is mad because when Milton Keynes was built, the cost of land was 1%, right? Now, whenever you buy a house in Britain, it's 60% of the cost of what you're buying is the land, right? The increase of the, right, of the price in land is entirely the result of an act of legislation in Britain that can be reversed. And with its reversal, you could actually generate much of the cost for hospitals, schools. But instead, what are we doing? We're selling school playgrounds to become apartment complexes. I'm literally walking past schools that have been there my yeah, entire yeah, life yeah, that are now blocks of housing yeah, yeah. with no playgrounds. Right? Yeah, that's my primary school. And and this is all just that that was in such an incredible analysis, Dan. But just to sort of say something a bit flippant that these are the the landowners are obviously the friends of the members of parliament. Of course, right? And there's I mean, this is I mean. They're going to have political representation. Yeah. There's no way politics can exist without those people lobbying, developing, pushing the levers of power. The Tories are always going to be in service to these people. What's so surprising for me is that we've lost any class consciousness that sees that they've never really cared, right? Mm. To the point that, like, one of the other mad things, right? So this is the, like, we've not built social housing, right? I think we've built. Like, we've not built council housing and we've got into this world of affordable housing and all of this stuff, right? But that doesn't mean the state aren't paying through the nose for housing, right? They're paying for temporary accommodation, paying housing benefit, but also subsidizing help to first time buyers, help to buy schemes, right? So we, we've spoke about the collective cladding scandal before, right? 20% of the cost of those help to buy houses is soaked up by the treasury already, yeah? And you've allowed these developers to build these houses with fire safety defects with cladding that needs to be removed to such an extent that, the, that you're now having to pay billions more to 
we're talking about the cost of these housing, right? Probably 30-40% of the cost of that housing has been absorbed by the Treasury already. And because of these defects, that housing is decreasing in value. So we're at a net loss mm. with so many of the houses we've built setting a target. And these targets, speak to anyone you know who's who works in manual trades, and I'll tell you these houses are built like shit, right? So, right? So we've got the solution to the crisis that is... Honestly, Dan, Dan, like, you've got to give us some hope, please. Come on. <laughs> we, need, we need a bit, a tiny bit. No, the detail, the detail, listen, this, this is a de- full... Listen, I love that. The, the detail's detail sick. sick. Like, I'm going gonna, gonna to quote so it much. like I said it to someone I've later on. I've learned <laughs> so much from this, but yeah, Dan, no, sick, for the man. listeners... Please, we need to end on something positive. Or no, hopeful. So the classical Marxist perspective on housing has been that you can't really, that it's it's housing, bad housing is a condition of bad jobs, bad labor relationships. The fundamental antagonism that exists within society is the relationship between capital and labor. And if we resolve that, we resolve the housing issue, right? Now, we aren't in a place where industrial relations are going to get us into any better housing anytime soon, right? And so there's a French theory, Henri Lefebvre, who writes The Right mm-hmm. to the City, right? And The Right to the City rethinks class relationships as based on urbanism, right? So it's not necessarily the workplace that is your site of struggle. It's your locality. It's issues in your block, issues on your street, local libraries, all of these type of things, right? And it's those spaces and it's the right to the city that I think is where our hope is. But it's, we've got a world to win and we've got a struggle. And to be perfectly honest, I think that the real story of Britain is that whenever the Conservatives have given over anything and the Conservatives have dominated us for hundreds of years, the time that Labour have been in government is absolutely infantismal if you really think about it over a long period mm-hmm. of history, right? Um, the only time that we get concessions from these guys, is when they're scared enough of us, right? They're scared enough of us through war, right? So what do we develop, right? <laughs> that can act, well, it's a movement, right? We have to develop movements and we have to develop consistent demands, right? And we have that, and, and, and through that, there is some level of hope, but it's not going to come through us engaging in this idea that we all, that if we engage in a property owning democracy that we're going to be all right i mean the position of leaseholders now in these blocks should tell us everything we need to know the position of people who exercise the right to buy and then we're hit with service charges that almost bankrupted them in the 80s and 90s should have been the warning signs of what was coming right you engage with the tories as somebody who couldn't buy without their help do you really think those people see you as part of a property-owning democracy or do you think that you're basically the new council tenants of the 21st century, right? If you had to be helped up on a housing ladder, do you think those people view you as the nouveau riche? No, right? They view you as a class apart in just a different sense, in a marketized sense, and you're a financialized asset to them, right? Pay a service charge, pay a rent, pay a mortgage, right? You've got, you've got shared ownership. You've got three revenue streams that are split between financialized companies that are trading with what you are bound to pay monthly, right? And we are all just financialized assets in a world of, in a Petri dish, unless we do something about it, right? And the worst thing is that you look, you look around London. <laughs> Fucking hell, man just reduced me down to a consumer, bro. A financial <laughs> consumer ball. An asset. An asset. Man, we fuck. Are. 
but that, but that, and that, but that's it. Housing is a right. It's not an asset, right? Sixty percent of our wealth as a nation. Danny Dornan says this. Sixty percent of our wealth as a nation is bound to our property market, mm -hmm. right? That's really unhealthy, right? Mad unhealthy, right? But this obsession with like buying like ownership, man, it's, it's like a British thing, man. Like whenever I've gone elsewhere, it's not as predominant, man. Like people don't mind if you buy or rent. It's but the idea to own something like that. Like it becomes like a social marker. You go places, and if, if you speak to people like family gatherings, are you married? Do you own a property? Have you got kids? And have you got kids? They're the three questions they're going to ask you. But, but this is it, and and this is what Dolan. This is why I think he's. he's this is where he's mad, right? Because he's saying, because almost every book you read says we have to build more housing, we have to build council housing, we have mm -hmm. to build cheap housing, we have to build affordable housing. And Dolan kind of goes, no, why are we building more housing? Right? There's people out here with seven houses, eight houses, right? <laughs> Why are we going to build new houses when these men have got eight houses? Let's yeah. just go and take some of their yards. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, but, and the thing is that, that is, we hear that as British society and we're like, whoa, we have no respect, mm. right? But this is like, how can we solve a housing crisis when some people, when people are allowed to have eight houses that they don't live in? It's, it's, it's not an abstract question. It's not like a radical leftist on the mm -hmm. sidelines of Britain asking this question. It's integral to us as a nation. We don't have a scarcity of homes, right? We have a, we have a, we have enough homes for the people in this country, but the houses, the homes aren't where the jobs are in large part because of the industrialization of certain parts of our country, because of brain drains and all of this stuff. We need a real like, like there is a solution, but it can't come through the market, and it never has been able to come through the market. And it's only when the state understand that the market is driving us to oblivion and that they have to do something, otherwise the poor are gonna do something about it themselves, is any time that we've got anything down. The reality for me is, right, they've made a political calculation that we're too diffused, broken, concerned about ourselves, that we're not a threat enough that they have to do anything about it, right? If there's a solution in any way to this thing, right, it's that we're playing a game of chicken and we're asking them to reform to conserve. But if they have to reform to conserve, then they have to believe that their conservation is under threat by us. Dan Rennick, everyone. That was absolutely brilliant. I am feeling Dan. pretty depressed, so I'm not going to lie. Dan. We have released, released to Dan. Dan. Um, that was incredible. Dan, Dan. sick, man. Sick. That's sick. so sick. So, so sick. This has yeah. been the housing series. More from Dan late this year. Thank you, listeners, so much. And Thanks. we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the housing series with Surviving Society. You can now continue the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast, Please support us via Patreon.